0: Sudden, I got this insane urge to clean the apartment. And I got up and started vacuuming. Boom, water breaks. Here comes Gabby. Yep. I had a 36 hour labor, which is pretty long. And evidently, I found out I've got a, uh, what do you call it, a uterine deformity where it doesn't open all the way. When I'm going through this delivery where they're trying to decide what to do with me, and all these male doctors are examining me, trying to figure out how to get this kid out of me, right? Lawrence felt that one of the doctors was inappropriate with me. And he <laughs> was evidently down. His hand was down there too long. Oh so my he God. goes off on this doctor claiming the doctor was molesting me and attacked the doctor. So security's called and they're going to arrest him. So he goes flying out down to the service elevator to not be arrested. Okay. So I'm like, lovely. I've got him flipping out on me during delivery. Okay, you know. Then he threatened to kill mom, and security came after him again. And he started calling mom a witch. I mean, he's just having episode after episode, (laughs) and I'm looking at my mom, going, "Can you please just get him out of here? Like, I'm a little busy having a kid right now, you know." Why was he calling her a witch? I thought she yeah. I hear Lawrence has just tried to kill your mother, and security's been called again. Why? He's calling her a witch. Why? I don't know. I mean, I don't know. I just. I, get, I found out later she called the coven and he'd heard it and freaked out that he was telling her to keep her witchcraft to herself. And, you know, <laughs> so they're they're going at it like two wet cats in a bag out in the out in the waiting room. Right. Oh you know, my God, what she was saying it was her daughter and she could do what she want. And so they're yeah, they're arguing out in the waiting room about mom being a witch, you know. <laughs> And I'm just going, okay, please, security, just get them away from me, you know. I mean, I'm just trying to have this kid, right? Yeah, so it was a three-ring circus, but I I will say this, because, like, after 36 hours, she just wasn't coming out. And they're, of course, trying to talk me into C-section. Now, I've heard the C-sections, they put you on morphine. I'm a recovering addict. I don't want to be on morphine after a C-section, so I'm fighting them every inch of the way saying there's got to be some way you can deliver this kid without a C-section. And finally, I finally made a deal with them. I said, you get a female doctor in here who tells me that there's no alternative for this other than a C-section, and I'll agree to it. And they said, get a female doctor. You know, so they bring in this, this I think she was Persian, little Persian doctor comes in. She goes, there's another alternative. I'm like, I'm all ears. And she said, we can suck it out with a vacuum. Okay, you know, <laughs> sounds like an idea to me. So they, I'm not kidding you, they vacuumed this poor kid out of me. They stuck the vacuum on her head, got the suction, it popped her out. Poor kid had blisters on the on the top of her head, though. That's <laughs> all right, you got her out. We got her out, and it was pretty rough. They had to cut me up pretty bad to get her out, too, that way, but I didn't care. As long as they weren't, I just didn't want a C-section and all that morphine they were talking about, you know? Because of being vacuumed out in the blisters, they said that the blisters caused her to have some kind of jaundice reaction, and therefore they had to keep her and put her under the blue lights So for the first couple of days and she wasn't getting better so I was like, after the third day she was not getting better. I had this huge argument with them insisting that they let me um, breastfeed her definitely I said she needs the I said she needs the antibody she's got to have it. So they finally agreed to let me do that. I got some breast milk dinner. Boom. By the next morning, she's fine. I mean, it did not trick. It's almost like, duh. I mean, yeah. I had Come to on, convince guys. these guys yeah. that she needed I, some freaking breast milk. Hospitals piss me off, man. I'm sorry. That's unbelievable. I mean, you should have seen how amazed they were. Like, oh, wow, at work, look at her numbers. They've gone straight down. No <laughs> shit. Doctor. Oh, man. Okay. Yeah. So you bring her home. So we bring her home. Like, yeah. And then... Yeah. So we get home from the hospital and he goes, your mother's not coming in this house. What? You know, he goes, I'm not letting that witch near the baby. And he just went into, oh, here we go. I'm going to get locked in the house again. You know, and, and that's when I said, look, I said, I, I can't take this anymore. I appreciate you're on your medication now. Then he confesses that he stopped taking his medication a week ago. And I'm going, okay, that explains a lot. I'm like, can you just take your medication? I went with him to the... I said, I'm going to go with you to your next neurologist appointment because I said, I don't understand why everything's at stake here. I am ready to leave you and take your baby and you can't take your fucking pills? You know, I mean, I I need to go talk to your doctor and find out more about what's going on. He wanted to talk to me alone. Calls me in the office and he goes, if I were you, I'd pack your shit And head for the hills. (laughs) And I'm like, uh, why? I could have told you that. And he said, he said, this guy's been doing drugs since he was 11. He's been drinking since he was eight. He said, he's got brain damage. You know, all the speed that he did, you know, in the 70s, he said, this guy's got brain damage. You know, and he said, he said, this brain damage occurred while his brain was developing as a child. He said, he's never going to recover from this. And I'm going, so what are you telling me? He said, no, amount of not lithium. It's, He said he won't take the medication. He said, I promise you, he will not take the medication for longer than 30 days straight. And he goes, here's what your problem is. He said, it's not when he's on the medication. He said, that's fine. He said, but when he comes off the medication, that's when he's capable of anything. And he goes, let me tell you a story about what these bipolars do with brain damage when they're coming off their medication. He said, he is perfectly capable of coming off the medication and going into an episode where he kills the baby, he kills you, and then he has no memory of it afterwards. And he said, he's perfectly capable of that. And he said, just leave. And he goes, and if you don't leave, he will hurt you. And then I went to a payphone and said, I'm leaving. Of course, he calls me every name in the book, hang up the phone, and... You know, because after I had Gabby and I realized that the the takeover had happened and everybody was shutting me out, I really did. I pretty much pulled out of N.A. and focused on Sex Workers Anonymous at that point. I realized there's nothing I could do about good. N.A. at that point. Just focus on my own shit.
1: Good. So, good for you.
0: Yeah. I mean, and that's what I've been doing since Gabby was born. I've been trying to stay focused on Sex Workers Anonymous stuff. You know, I took that kid. I stuck her on my lap because you can imagine every time I put her down, she's crying. But if I have her on my lap, she's not. So I learned, I actually learned how to sit at the computer and type with her on my lap at the same time. Because as long as I had her on my lap while I was typing, she was quiet. And I wrote the book. That's the Prostitutes Anonymous Recovery Guide. Huh. And it was, and I, it took me about two solid weeks just nonstop. I mean I stopped to eat, take a shower, feed the kid, go back to write. and I had her on my lap the whole time. I wrote that because I had I had material collected from all these groups that had been given to me, right And I had stories that had been given to me and I had so I got to think to myself, do I really want to do all this television if I'm having a baby talking about prostitution? No. And I did do a couple I did like a, this in playboy, I did a Chic magazine spread. It was like six pages long, and Chic's like an adult magazine. We got, I think it was a three-part series in Cosmopolitan on Prostitutes Anonymous. And that brought in a lot of calls, you can imagine. We got a lot of calls, a lot of letters. I mean, so I'm focusing on print. I got Dear Abby to write about us, I got, uh, and that brought in a lot of letters. And, I mean, so I'm trying to focus our outreach on print so that I can try to get back to being anonymous, you know? Yeah. When I went back to California, this guy shows up to me, Michael, and he'd been sold when he was eight, okay? And he'd been sold to this pimp when he was eight that he couldn't get away from. He starts telling these horrible, just horrible mind-bending stories of what this pimp did to him as a kid. And his mother was an addict, so his mother sold him when he was eight to some bikers like Hell's Angels types, right? And he supposedly got broke in by these Hell's Angels. Um, and then they sold him, like, six months later um, to this pimp, okay? And he tells me that this pimp um, had was in New York. The pimp took him to, like, an abandoned building and covered him in honey and left him up there for the bugs to crawl on him. And the whole point was to make him ready to do whatever this guy said to get him out of there, okay? So, yes, he's covered in honey and the bugs are all over him. He's nine years old. He'll do anything this guy says. That's the way he breaks in all the kids to make them cooperative. Um, Then he said that they would dress him up like a girl. They started pumping him full of female hormones, getting the wig on him, dresses on him, dressing him up like a girl so that when he would go out, on his prostitution calls or his pornography calls, then they would think he was a girl because there was less question about girls, evidently. And he said the lowest earner would start getting picked on and tortured and then eventually killed in front of the other kids. And he said that the the killing of the lowest earner was to send a message to them that they better stay on their game or they were going to be next. And if he's telling me, that he starts figuring out it's just a matter of time as he gets older that he's going to be on this shit list. You know, as he gets older, he starts going through the hormonal changes when he got about 13, you know, that's when they start developing, you know, male characteristics. Um, he became a liability. Um, well, he said that he got a gun from one of the clients and he had it stashed. And he said that when the pimp went to go get in the safe to get the gun and he knew it was him that was going to be killed, He got his gun that he had stashed for that occasion and shot the pimp. And um, so he said he shot the pimp, um, got into police custody. Um, And I do remember looking up, the Internet's been really censored, but I do remember looking up his case. So I do know there's news clippings somewhere in New York about this case, you know, and so, because I'm also wanting to know, is this guy enemy story or what? No, there was news stories about this 13-year-old boy that killed this pimp. Only they wrote it off as kidnapper, you know. I mean, but, so he tells me that he's in police custody during his trial. And he tells me that when he's in police custody during his trial, he tells me that the guards at night would take money to sneak in pedophiles' That would rape the children at night. Oh, my God. Yeah, and he said that he knew he was not going to survive long in police custody for that reason, you know, because he's like, they're bringing in these pedophiles at night that are just raping these children, and no one's believing them because they're in police custody. What do you mean you got raped at night? You're crazy. And then they load them on more medication. So he's like, you know, he can see that he's not going to survive this, so he runs away. He's 13 years old. What the fuck is he going to do? So his clients have been senators and politicians and businessmen. He's just been seeing children sold out of police custody. You know, he doesn't trust anybody. Um, he says that, you know, they found him and they gave him back to the social worker. So it's when the social worker was supposed to put him into the group home, that instead she got paid off to make it look like he'd run away and he got sold to another pimp. So he tells me he's now back in the same network that he had just tried to get out of. He starts telling me the story, his story is that these pimps of children have a network all across the United States. And so just because he killed his pimp didn't mean that the network was done with him yet. Now, I'm not sure whether this guy's tripping or not, you know, and he's not the only one, by the way. There was another guy named David who had come out of the same family that Michael had come out of that also had found us. So he's basically in the same network, also recovering. So I'm hearing the same story out of David that I'm hearing out of Michael. But here's Mike's story, and it, and I, I really I adore Mike. He was like a brother to me because, well, he starts telling me that all these pimps in New York that he's aware of are... Taking the money that they're getting from child sales, child sex trafficking, and it's going into Sony. You know, and I'm just filing this away. He's just telling me all this stuff, like Sony is being built on child sex trafficking money. Okay, oh you know. My God. But he's telling me about how when you get to be an adult, they put you into management. And like I said, he's he's claiming to me that the money is being laundered through Sony Records and Sony Entertainment, et cetera. This is how they're like taking all the money from all these operations and they're laundering it through Sony. Oh my God. He's telling me that he, and I'm like, how do you know it's Sony? He goes, I'd see the guy take the money into Sony every week. I'm like, Oh, okay. So, and it makes sense to me because I know how our family was using the club to launder money and they wanted to start a record company. It makes perfect sense to me. What a great way to launder this money. Right. Cause remember, Tina told me about being sold at eight years old. Mike is telling me about being sold at eight years old. I mean, there's obviously something going on here, right? This is it. I'm hearing Mike's story and Tina's I'm hearing all the same story out of unrelated people. This obviously is real. And my mom had even heard stories about, if you see this movie, by the way, Changeling with um, Angelina Jolie, it references this, this um farm or this ranch where all these kids disappeared too. that was real that was happening in my mom's day because she would hear about it at the juvenile hall about these kids that would disappear in this and you'd hear you know through the grapevine about this ranch right and the kids were used in child porn and snuff films and you know that kind of thing so I mean this is a very real network because I remember in Changeling they talked about um, I thought it was important in the movie not just the ranch But this whole system that L.A. had back then, where they still do this today, where if you buck the LAPD, they will stick you in the nut ward. They will uh, get you arrested. They'll take your kids away. I mean, it talks about this network in that film. Show how far back this goes, because this is still happening today. You buck LAPD, you're going to hit this goon squad, whatever you want. There was some name they called it, this network of cops, connected up with LAPD and the mental health system and the court. It's like some kind of gang where it was, I don't know. You have to dig into the history. So this stuff's been going on a long time, in other words, right? Yeah. And I'm, and I'm kind of bringing this up for a reason. Remember, I mean, anything to do with prostitution and recovery, up in, in the early 90s are coming to me. And, um, you know, Donahue calls. Now, Donahue's coming at me saying that they want to do did, you know another show. So I think that Mike's story is phenomenal because what am I doing? I'm trying to raise awareness about sex trafficking, especially child sex trafficking. Yeah, so Mike's yeah, story would the blow them away, blow them away, right? Yeah. So, and I'm thinking, okay, maybe this will be my like last outreach. I'll really rock them and get that hotline number out there. You know? Yeah. Michael's story is crazy. I, I go ahead. That's what I thought, and I really felt that his story would be really important highlight on the Donahue, you know? So I felt like if I'm going to do this, then we're going to go for broke. You know, I'm going to bring Mike on and we're really going to rock their world, you know? Yeah. Because I had not seen anyone. I had not seen anyone go on national television talking about this, this network of child traffickers, you know? And here's Michael living story. And then I get that call from, uh, You know, I made the travel arrangements to do the show, you know, because we have to give the producer our address and stuff for the flight. Anyway, now, mind you, you know, Michael is, I know, staying at this apartment in, like, West Hollywood. And I think I'm the only living person that knows where he lives. as you know, he's being very careful about his identity, where he lives because of these people, you know, and he says they're still trying to suck him back into the operation. So anyway, Mike and I were scheduled to do the show originally. And then I figured, okay, well, it'll be my last hurrah, and I'll get the promotion out for the hotline, right? And then, I mean, like a couple of hours before the flight, I get a call from the ER, Michael's in the ER. So go over to ER. Michael's just been had the total living shit beat out of him. I mean, he's just two black eyes, broken nose, the whole shebang. He's he's beaten to a bloody pulp. Now, the only people that knew where he lived, the only people that knew where he lived was the producer from the show that arranged his fight from L.A. out to New York. And the guys that came and beat him up, he said that they had told him, you're not getting on that plane. He could have told me anybody beat him up, right? He said, no, they don't, you know, they, they told me don't do the show. But he was so beaten up, he couldn't have made the plane anyway. So I just, like, it, I'm not happy, you know. Now, that's, honestly, that's why it's the last show I ever did. Because in my mind, if these shows are being used to get information on our members like this, you know what I mean, If then I'm not doing it, you know. And that's why you don't see any more of my talk shows after 92, But I've later learned about the connection between Sony and NBC, and NBC was the studio where it was being filmed. So all I know is, you know, I get a call the night before, we're supposed to be on the plane in the morning, and I've got to go see Mike in the ER. He's just been beat to a bloody pulp, and he's telling me that he got a visit, and they told him not to get on that plane. And I'm like, I'm like, I'm speechless because I'm like, how do they even know? Again, this is pre-cell phone, pre-internet, pre, you know, how do they know? You know? I mean, this was not long. I mean, he didn't live long after Donahue. He really didn't. Because I think he found out he had cancer maybe a month later. Because he said the doctor said that all the hormones they put him on as a child were just so massive. It just fucked up his body. You know? Um so he had some kind of cancer related to the female hormones that they had him on. Evidently, they were cheap female hormones too, and he didn't live long. I mean, he didn't he didn't last long. No, I mean i I don't know. We we gave him a nice cremation. He wanted to have his you know ashes shattered at the pier, so we did that. I mean, Santa Monica pier. You're not supposed to do it, but he wanted to be off the pier, so I went and did it anyway. You know, and he didn't have any family. I was like the closest thing to family he had. So I took care of things when he died. So he was dead before he was thirty. Damn it, man. Yeah, these are the people that I'm that I'm trying to work with in this program, though. You know, I mean that you can see why to me it's important. Where else would Michael have gone? No, I mean yeah. I I I, uh, I salute you, Jody, because this. I mean not just that. I mean just. Just so much.